hot weather. It can be downright dangerous. Parts of the world are experiencing high heat days, and that's becoming a concern to the armed services. Extreme heat can get in the way of work and operations. Now the Defense Department is rethinking its relationship with heat. We get the latest from Federal News Network's Scott Massioni. Heat can be uncomfortable and difficult on equipment and people. What are the issues now with heat that does seem to be extreme here and there? That's right. Well, there's been recent studies that have said basically that since the 1980s, the number of extreme heat days have tripled, and that's where things get dangerous for human beings and you run the risk of getting heat stroke. And what's particularly dangerous about this is not necessarily the temperature, but the wet bulb temperature. That's an indicator that accounts for humidity and better measures how dangerous conditions are outside. So that's what the study actually counted as opposed to temperature. Now, for people in the military, as you know, they're working in extreme conditions to begin with. Many of them are uh, in remote parts of the world, are also in southern parts of the United States where it tends to get much hotter, and also on areas like an aircraft carrier, which can be extremely hot when you really don't have any kind of shade and you're, you're dealing with asphalt and hot metal all the time. And not only that, you are encased in layers of protective clothing, too, which you know, there's a jacket on top of the uniform and big cranial to keep your head and your ears safe. So it can be pretty tough out there. It's particularly dangerous to the military. What are they thinking about doing? Well, there's quite a few things that they're thinking about doing, and they're thinking about this in many different ways. Right now, when it comes to the safety of heat, the military is thinking about investing in ways that it can wick off heat from people. And what they're really calling this is cooling factors, what, you know, how they can cool people. And that may just be creating cooling centers within bases, creating cooling centers on those aircraft carriers and on those decks. Uh, it also means uh, new kinds of equipment. One thing that the Air Force has recently licensed is a, le- a liquid cooling plate carrier that was invented by one of its airmen. It's kind of like what the astronauts wear. It has a series of tubes and valves that connect to battery-powered pumps, and that's really a hydration bladder there that keeps coolness on the body. But what's really interesting about this is once that actually heats up and becomes part of the body temperature, you can then drink that water if you need to rehydrate. So pretty innovative thing that they're dealing with there. These are all things that the military has to take into account and will end up being part of their infrastructure costs and maintenance costs going forward as they're thinking about how they're going to deal with heat, especially as this heat becomes more prevalent throughout the world and in places where they're operating. So then they're looking at bases of operations, whether that's a carrier or some land or airfield, whatever the case might be. But it also sounds like they're looking at ways of cooling people personally. Are they talking about different uniform designs that might be more wicking or more mesh-based or that kind of thing? That could also be a possibility, and that's one of the things that the Defense Department has done in the past is team up with companies like Nike or Adidas to try and find and create uniforms and textiles that are more helpful for people. Another thing to keep in mind about this is that you have to deal with electricity and power, and that is another reason that the military is looking into ways that they can bring electricity and batteries and power into remote operating areas and into the most extreme areas where they're doing operations. That's why they're investing in solar and these new source of batteries so that they can create air-conditioned areas or even just recharge these sorts of uniforms that we're talking about that will use battery power.
And what about operation and tactical? Because it's possible that different units will actually have to engage in battle at some point where you can't maybe have the luxury of a cooling center and this type of thing. And yet it could be a strategic disadvantage if people aren't used to the heat the way the enemy might be or whatever the enemy has. Is that part of the thinking also? That's exactly what they're thinking, especially now that they're talking about China and Russia as near-peer competitors. We're seeing areas where, because of climate change, there's going to be more arid areas and areas where water won't be as accessible or even might be a fought-over resource. One of the things that Richard Kidd, who's the DOD Deputy Assistant Secretary, Secretary for Environment and Energy Resilience said is that the Defense Department at this point wants to own heat much like it owns the night now. So back in the 80s and 90s, the military said this is our time to start investing in things like night vision goggles, in working with radar and thermal. Now they're going to try to do this with heat and try to be the fighting force that can work in heat and work in times when other enemies might not be able to do this. So not only will the Defense Department own the night, but it will own the heat as well, and that could be an extreme strategic advantage for them. Yes, they'll have to because there's no way of training a Gila monster, say, to carry a rifle at this point, even though it's a very heat-resistant type of reptile there. And there's, I guess, an extreme temperature orientation coming into the military in general because the Arctic forces, where the Army is gearing up to have a greater presence for the potentials that can happen in the Arctic region now. It may be warmer than it was, but it's still cold. So they have a cold management issue up there. That's right. And and even with climate change, you know, this doesn't necessarily mean that it's only global warming. It means that there's extreme temperatures all over the globe at this point. So there are places where it is colder as well. And that's part of the Defense Department's climate adaptation plan is being able to train operate and do everything that they need to do in a world that is changing to a more extreme sort of of climate. In the past, 30 or 40 years ago, while things may may have been more temperate, now they're having to think about how they can operate in these extreme temperatures. So we're seeing them also invest in programs like this as well. They're uh, building another icebreaker and smaller icebreakers because of the Arctic opening up. And we're also seeing them build many other cooling situations for the Middle East and for possibly other areas in Asia. And is this a service-by-service activity, or is there some kind of unified program that's overseeing the whole issue of heat management? Well, last October, we saw the Defense Department come out with this climate adaptation plan that I, I talked about just a second ago. And that is really informing all of the different services. Now, they'll each have their different ways of doing this. The Air Force and Navy will be dealing with aircraft carriers much more than the Army will. But that climate adaptation plan is really what is informing all of this. And not only is it informing them in ways that is helping them manage heat and cold, but it's also informing the ways that the Defense Department operates in terms of saving energy and also trying to reduce some of that carbon footprint that they have been using in the past and have certainly been a huge part of the climate footprint of the United States. They're taking into account many different parts of this climate adaptation plan and climate change and trying to ensure that they're not making a big footprint for the future and also they can operate in this future landscape that's completely different. And there's probably a lot of soldiers that would welcome an air-conditioned tank too. Oh, I'm sure about that. And also if you consider where they train down in Fort Benning and and those sorts of areas, it's certainly extremely hot and they may have to bring out, you know, different cooling tents even just out in training instead of waiting until you get back to base. Federal News Network's Scott Mossioni, thanks so much. Thank you. And check out his story about this at federalnewsnetwork.com.
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? 
well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, Jane, it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And 
a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in in federal service? And she said, "Uh, isn't that for old people? (laughs) I said, "Uh, (laughs) um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, So there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Lady Lunchington presents Sandwichisms. There is no such thing as a free lunch, but you absolutely deserve a free lunch hour. Better make it count with a grilled cheese that pays in tasty stacks of craft singles. This has been another Sandwichism by Lady Lunchington, world's only certified lunch coach. Sandwich more at LadyLunchington.com.